you take a seed, you plant it, you grow it, you dry it, you roll it, you smoke it, and it goes down smooth. Hey! Spanning the continent to bring you the truth about cannabis and marijuana law reform. I smoke pot and I like it a lot. The Rock Bellville Show, the voice of the marijuana nation. Now, here's your host, Radical Ross Bellville. Day tokers and tokets and non-toking lovers of liberty. It is Thursday, November 5th, 2015, and it's got to be 420 somewhere in the world. Also got to be starting just a little bit late here. Sorry about that. We had some uh, difficulties getting connected through our Spreaker setup here on the remote setup. We are in Columbus, Ohio still for the uh, election that took place a couple of days ago. Of course, we uh, suffered the defeat of Issue 3 here in Ohio, so uh, a lot of folks are still nursing that wound, feeling pretty bad about that. But uh, don't fret, folks. I've got some good news coming for you. There is going to be reform here in this state, and there's still going to be reform battles to fight all over the United States. So we just need to be diligent and remember that the uh, fight is not over yet. Nobody said legalizing marijuana was going to be easy. Uh, It's going to take battle after battle. So we'll talk about that today on the show. Also joining us on the show today in our Cops Say Legalize Drugs segment, we got Walter Crowell. He is a former assistant district attorney in Texas, and uh, we're going to talk to him, find out why he believes not just marijuana, but all drugs need to be legalized in the United States to take the crime out of the equation. We'll also take a look at the uh, marijuana headlines that are happening here in the United States and around around the world. There was uh, recently a bust here in Ohio on (laughs) election day of all things, or actually the day after the election, I think it was, where uh, millions or supposedly millions of dollars worth of marijuana uh, was confiscated by the authorities. You know how they like to uh, uh, count plants. I think in this case, they were saying a single plant is worth $5,000 or a pound was worth $5,000. It's funny how it's never worth $5,000 when you're trying to get it uh, uh, restitution for it when it's taken for you in a legal state. But uh, yeah, the expensive plant uh, uh, mathematics are still at work here in the state of Ohio. I'm here at the uh, Woodlands Backyard. This is a different location than I was at for the election night. Uh, This is going to be the location of the Women Grow event here in Columbus, Ohio, and that's taking place in the very next hour. So at the top of the next hour, uh, we will be bringing you the Women Grow event, and uh, I will be speaking at the Women Grow event as well. So stay tuned for that. That's coming up in just about 40 minutes here on CannabisRadio.com. It's been my pleasure to be out here in Columbus, Ohio. met a whole bunch of great activists, great people that are fighting for the end of adult marijuana prohibition. And there's a lot of lessons to be learned from what has happened here in Ohio. And I think uh, many people out there writing on this issue, uh, Tom Angel, Christopher Ingraham, uh, there's been a lot of good reports up there, uh, great postmortems on what can be learned. A very interesting development uh, in my mind is how the Reform California Coalition has jumped on this. Uh, they released a letter earlier, uh, either yesterday or today, uh, talking about how Reform CA is a grassroots coalition and has industry leaders and people that have been working in reform for years and years and years. And uh, Sean Parker, he's a billionaire, and Ohio just rejected uh, billionaires using uh, legalization as a stocking horse for big marijuana. 
marijuana. So already people in the marijuana reform movement are happening upon this framing of fighting big marijuana, fighting corporate marijuana. And we'll talk about that today in the Radical Rant, where now are our own legalization uh, reform advocates for stalling possible legalization options simply because they don't like the economic way that it's set up. So we'll get into that in the Radical Rant and plenty more here live from Columbus, Ohio at the uh, the Woodlands Backyard. And uh, the Women Grow event, again, starts at the top of the hour. We'll be bringing that to you. We'll have all sorts of guests to speak to live here from uh, this event. And until then, we are going to take a short break, a pause for the good cause. And uh, when we come back, we'll have uh, more for you here from the state of Ohio. You're listening to CannabisRadio.com. I'm Radical Russ. This is the Russ Belleville Show. And check out the rest of the lineup on CannabisRadio.com. We have all the bases covered. Advocacy, growing, enthusiasts, entrepreneurs, the law. If you're interested in the marijuana law reform movement, the growing green rush, or you just like to smoke pot, Cannabis Radio is the place for you. We're back with the news right after this. You're tuned into the Russ Belleville Show, the voice of the marijuana nation. and marijuana law reform. I smoke pot and I like it a lot. Imagine life without taxes. Let New Era Certified Public Accountants, NewEraCPAs.com, handle your Cannabis 280E and tax strategy. Get your business prepared with New Era CPA's Cannabis Finance Boot Camp. NewEraCPAs.com, with years of experience in the industry, we are one of the nation's leading accounting firms for growers, dispensaries, and ancillary companies from Washington to California. NewEraCPAs.com. Dr. Dabber, hurry! Its temperature is shooting past 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit. It's burning up! I'm afraid for this little guy, it's just too late. What caused the problem? Only Dr. Dabber can maintain the perfect temperature for a smooth-tasting, slower burn. This standard vaporizer lost all of its health benefits, sending it up in smoke. So you're telling me that most vapor pens burn so hot they produce smoke, not vapor? Correct! Keep away from those standard vaporizer pens and turn to Dr. Dabber, doctor's order. Less heat, more flavor. Gondrepreneur.com, your guide to the cannabis business world. Gondrepreneur.com is a comprehensive resource for cannabis professionals and entrepreneurs. Download the Gondrepreneur app on your smartphone or tablet to catch up on cannabis industry news, scroll through our daily job listings, and learn about successful cannabis companies, executives, and investors. Gondrepreneur.com, helping Gondrepreneurs grow. This is your Cannabis Radio News for Thursday, November 5th, 2015. I'm Russ Belleville. 
Marijuana is literally the least of the nation's drug worries, the police have announced. This from the Washington Post. America's cops overwhelmingly do not see marijuana as a major threat to their communities, according to results of a survey released this week as part of the Drug Enforcement Administration's 2015 National Drug Threat Assessment Summary. The DEA asked a nationally representative sample of over 1,000 law enforcement agencies what they saw as their biggest drug threats. Marijuana came in at the bottom of the list, named by only 6% of survey respondents. The share of law enforcement agencies naming pot has been declining steadily since the mid-2000s, even as states have moved to legalize medical and recreational marijuana during that time period. By contrast, nearly three-quarters of police departments named heroin and meth as their top drug threats this year. The perceived threat of heroin has more than quadrupled since 2007, according to the survey. And after rising sharply from 2007 to 2013, the threat posed by prescription painkillers has subsided considerably over the past two years. Ohio said no to legalizing marijuana. It might have nixed federal reforms, too, from the Washington Post. On Tuesday, voters in Ohio rejected a constitutional amendment that would have legalized both medical and recreational marijuana use. Naturally, folks are wondering about the implications of Issue 3's failure for similar measures in other states. But there's a larger question as well. Could the defeat of Ohio's Issue 3 influence marijuana policy at the federal level? For instance, efforts to eliminate federal felony charges for non-medical marijuana or to influence related questions like DEA funding and drug sentencing guidelines and so on. Yes, it probably will. In 2011, Dan Smith, Josh Huter, and the Washington Post uh, reporter published an article in American Politics Research that explored whether the passage or failure of statewide ballot measures affects how Congress members vote. In other words, do state ballot measures influence policy outcomes at the federal level? Our theory was that when a statewide ballot measure either passes or fails, it tells lawmakers precisely what their constituents want down to the district level. That helps reduce policy shirking. In- That helps reduce policy shirking in which lawmakers vote contrary to the wishes of their constituents. And according to their results, they tested the hypothesis and they found the part to be partly correct. Members of the House do vote in ways that appear to be influenced by how their constituents voted on ballot measures. It did not seem to be true for members of the Senate. A small part of Iowa votes to legalize medical and recreational marijuana. Leaders of the Omaha tribe in Nebraska are considering land in western Iowa for growing marijuana. The Sioux City Journal newspaper reports tribal members approved three referendums Tuesday, giving the tribal council the authority to legalize marijuana for medicinal and recreational use and to grow plants for industrial hemp. Tribal chairman Vernon Miller says a study will examine whether the business would make financial sense. Miller says leaders will watch the performance of the Flandreau Santee Sioux Marijuana Resort on its South Dakota reservation. Miller says it's unclear whether the Omaha tribe's casino, Blackbird Bend, could become a similar resort. Miller says the tribe will ensure its efforts wouldn't violate federal or state laws. Ohio Attorney General believes legal medical marijuana is likely... Ohio's Attorney General Mike DeWine believes that medical marijuana will be available to Ohioans sooner rather than later, saying, quote, I think medical marijuana is coming. Most Ohioans, when they look at this issue, you know, have great sympathy for people who might be helped by medical marijuana, end quote, Attorney General Mike DeWine said. 
DeWine said clinical studies and trials involving marijuana are going on across the country, including at Children's Hospital in Columbus. Researchers are trying to determine if a new marijuana-based drug produced in Great Britain is helpful when it comes to treating children who have multiple seizures. DeWine believes the results from the studies will be back within the year, and he anticipates that the FDA will take appropriate action when the results are announced. Fired medical marijuana users are eligible for unemployment benefits after a court ruling. This from Michigan Live. The Michigan Supreme Court has refused to hear an appeal from the Unemployment Insurance Agency in a case involving people, uh, benefits for people fired from jobs over medical marijuana use. The denial means people with medical marijuana cards who lost work after failing drug tests will continue to be eligible for unemployment benefits based on an October 2014 appeals court ruling. The Unemployment Insurance Agency appealed lower court decisions out of Maycomb and Ingham counties that reversed the rulings from the Michigan Compensation Appellate Commission that said fired workers were disqualified from jobless benefits. The state appeals court in one consolidated decision upheld those rulings. This has been your Cannabis Radio News for Thursday, November 5th, 2015. I'm Russ Belville. Show, the voice of the marijuana nation. Get dot buzz. Dot buzz is the internet platform that fuels community interest, excitement, and new experiences. Dot buzz is the premier online destination for internet users seeking the latest news on a variety of topics. Dot buzz appeals to groups active in blogging, communications, journalism, advertising, and marketing. DotBuzz offers registrants a stronger alternative to the shrinking namespace of existing top-level domain names, such as .com, .net, and .org. Get your name now at get.buzz. Great websites today need expert web design and development and need to be e-commerce ready and mobile friendly. But building a marketable and profitable website can be an uphill climb. Ready to make your new website or replace your existing website? Think Orange as the new way to get in the black. Orange Hill Development works with Fortune 500 companies and offer the same top quality development service at a fraction of what other providers charge. Brands like Absolute, Carlsberg, and Nestle trust Orange Hill Development. Find out why you should trust your website with Orange Hill. Contact Orange Hill for a consultation today at orangehilldevelopment.com. The Russ Belville Show is proudly sponsored by the Marijuana Business Association. The MJBA, called by NBC News the Cannabis Chamber of Commerce, is the fastest-growing business association in the fastest-growing industry in America. I've been working with the MJBA for years, and I personally invite you to join the MJBA. MJBA also publishes the popular MJ Headline News on Facebook and the MJNewsNetwork.com and Marijuana Channel 1 on YouTube. Visit MJBA.net for more details. Your call is forwarded. Automatically.
Automatic voice message system. One of the most disturbing elements of the Prohibition War is how it's made police the enemy of otherwise law-abiding cannabis consumers. Fortunately, one group of police officers knows the futility of Prohibition and reaches out to educate the community and current law enforcement. Today, the Russ Belleville Show visits with another speaker from Law Enforcement Against Prohibition with one clear message. Cops say legalize drugs. All right, welcome back, everybody. <laughs> Trying to get on the line here with uh, our <laughs> our guest from Leap, who keeps calling me at the same time I'm trying to call him. So let me see if I can get this to work because uh, we keep missing each other and playing telephone tag. It's Walter Crowell. He is a uh, former district attorney in uh, assistant district attorney in Texas, and we'll get him on the line here. I think it's ringing right now. Hello, Walter. Hi. Hi. Hi, oh, I, I was just trying to call you. Yeah, we, we were calling each other exactly the same time. So uh, thank you, Walter, for being on the show. Uh, appreciate you uh, joining us here tonight. Can you hear me okay? Oh, what a perfect time to talk. I do that all the time. Well, uh, Walter here is a speaker for Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, one of the fine uh, organizations that is working to end not just adult marijuana prohibition, but the prohibition of all drugs. He's a former assistant district attorney in Starr County, Texas. And uh, Starr County, that's down there on the southern border with Mexico, isn't it? yeah wow so uh you're you're saying here that it's just so rampant the smuggling is so rampant that you know 500 pounds is nothing i mean what would happen to someone getting busted with 500 pounds down there in stark county what well, well, uh, uh my, my first, first day in court, court right? right? I'm, I'm from, from uh, the suburb of Dallas, Dallas, right? right? Uh, uh, my, my first, first day in court, court, I got my case filed. First one, I pulled out 350 pounds, right? right? And, and the attorney's asking me for an offer. offer. Now, what now, do you think he's asking for? That's that secondary felony to 20 years. Right, right. And his offer? No prison. He's asked for a three-year year Wow. You get to get finished, you get to get Now, that's normal for ACAs, normal for actual state prosecution. And smuggling, this is marijuana, this is, you know, in those amounts. You know, I tried a case, it was 2,500 pounds of marijuana. I was secretary we, we got, got guilty. guilty. The guy died. Wow. <laughs> so that, that's got to have an effect, you know, when you're trying to prosecute these cases and uh, such great amounts are merely getting, you know, what amounts to probation or slaps on the wrist. Did it, did it just really bring into question, you know, what's the point of doing this in the first place? Uh, well, more, more than, than that, that, what, what it, it was, was, I, 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 I used on the sideline crime squad, so I was, I was trying, trying to, to 
The county is awesome. Running for re-election is great. Very understanding. Previous one didn't get a lot of help, and we had a lot of extra Okay. And those are very difficult for me to be held prosecuted because all the officers are getting arrested. One case goes out with like 12 victims. The head of the sheriff's office got arrested by the feds, and he's in federal prison. The last three sheriffs in Star County all were considered to serve prison time. Wow. Okay, so. You know, so we had a DA's office that had five attorneys but 11 narco agents because all the federal drug task force money flowed through our office. Hmm. Wow. All right. Uh, so, uh, again, we're speaking with Walter Crowell. He's a former district attorney in Star County, Texas. So uh, how long did you see that happening? How, how long was that going on before you started to uh, form the opinion, you, the opinion you've come to today? Well... When I first saw the stacks, you know, uh, like they were messing with me because they knew where I was from. The people, you know, the, the other attorneys, and they give me these like, oh, 300 pounds. I'm like, oh my god! And it's like, here's 400 pounds. Oh my god! It's like those aren't anything. Here's a, here's a whole bunch of like thousand pound ones, you know. Hmm. Uh, when I took over the court, I ended up giving all of those type of cases to my second chair. I handled uh, the state jail felony possession and the victim cases, and. You know, it's part of what changed on me is, you know, you can't treat like criminals if you want them to get better. And you create violence by having a drug war. Every time one of the, every time they got one of the big guys in charge in Mexico, there would be violence. You could see explosions from the U.S. side, Hmm. you know. Uh, my apartment in Mission, there was a five-hour firefight five miles from it. Uh, it was in the Mexican side, but all of that's what all that money creates. When you all the the longer I was down there, the more I saw, the more I felt like all you do with prohibition is you treat addicts like criminals instead of treating them like a medical problem, like you should, and you make it very easy for the worst people in the world to make a whole shit ton of money. <laughs> there you go. No doubt about that. Uh, we're speaking with Walter Crowell here. He's from Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, and you can find out more about the organization of former cops, prison guards, prosecuting attorneys, and more uh, at leap.cc. They've got speakers all over the country and around the world who will come out to your event and speak with clarity and gravitas to the issue of ending the war on drugs. Now, uh, you're now a speaker. With and, the, oh, uh, yes, go ahead. I want to clarify something. It's current and former. There are some members that are brave enough to be current leap speakers and still stay in law enforcement. Yeah, you're right. Uh, and, you know, those people especially are the bravest ones. Yes, so much more than in the past as well. We're seeing more and more of the active duty law enforcers uh, getting involved with LEAP. We really do appreciate that. Now, as a LEAP speaker and being in what you say is the first rural county uh, when you're heading uh, down there, down south in Texas, uh, how is this message resonating? Are, are the people in your rural county starting to get this, starting to see that, you know, we're not stopping this flood, you know, we got to do something different? 
Well, I'm not down there anymore. I'm, I'm, I moved back to Dallas. I wasn't brave enough to be a current law enforcement person on LEAP. But when I moved back, I started being a defense attorney up here, and I'd see, like, the difference. Like, when I got a felony, and in Texas, uh, felony is, you know, under one gram, which is a fake sugar pack. You know, uh, under four grams is a third degree, which is a, a real sugar packet. Mm-hmm. And, you know, these are personal use amounts. and I, It's felonies, and, you know, the police would do Terry pat-downs, which are supposed to be light exterior frisk, right? Right. But they're finding cocaine in the pocket. So I, I had to train my defense attorneys how to do suppressions because I couldn't just dismiss it, you know? I needed, I needed a reason. I needed to show the cops what to do. Uh, but I always asked, you know, because I ran intake, which, you know, every single case would come in, would go through me, pretty much. It's like, does this person deserve to be a felon or not? Mm-hmm. You know, and it's like, well, California recently decriminalized uh, or did de-felonized drug possession. You know, it, it makes it easier for addicts to get help. You know, that's what happened in Portugal. It's what happened in Switzerland. And, you know, I'm up here, and they're making people jump through all these hoops, you know, and they put them in jail, and then they don't get treatment until six months, a year later, and then the treatment's not necessarily what they need, you know? Uh, it just seems all pointless to me, where it was very difficult. It was easier to go, you know, take pictures in front of a big stack of marijuana. Everybody loved it, right? Than it was to work actual cases, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think the role of law enforcement is to protect and serve. So I always viewed uh, everyone, including the defendant, as my client. You know, when it, there are certain crimes that, you know, you, you got to go away, but you compare those to the drug crimes, it's weird. You know, in Texas, beating up your wife is a misdemeanor, having the teeniest, tiny amount of cocaine on you, and you're a felon. Hmm. It just makes no sense to me. Yeah, and I'm glad you addressed this point, how the law enforcement focusing on these drug so-called crimes detracts the resources necessary to focus on real crimes. And we've seen the result of that in the clearance rates for crimes, you know, below 50 percent, in below 25 percent in some cases. Well, since the 1970s, when Nixon started the drug war, the murder solve rate's gone from about 90 down to about 60. It didn't stabilize till about the 1990s. And the same type of thing happened during alcohol prohibition. And nobody's going to say that alcohol doesn't cause a lot of harm, but prohibiting alcohol created organized crime. It was not organized crime before the prohibition of alcohol. You know, it's the same thing with drug prohibition. You know, uh, the stacks of cash, the guys at the top make, the guy, uh, I think it's Trevino, who just escaped from jail again, is listed on the Forbes list, if I'm not wrong. Yeah. You know, uh, you know the people that we arrested down there on the border, you know, uh, it'd be Border Patrol, they would see something, they'd go, and they'd have these people, and there'd be this giant stack of dope, and then the AUSAs wouldn't take the case, and then our guys got to burn the dope, and it's just... It's like, why can't, I, it was, why can't I use all these resources to help me prosecute this child sexual assault case or help me find the one guy in this neighborhood that is apparently robbing stuff off people's lawns to make everybody in that neighborhood feel safe? Yeah. Yeah. And it really does, and the forfeiture 
the asset forfeiture also it changes. I mean, it's like Ferguson when you have when there's a financial motive behind law enforcement, it's wrong. Here, here. Uh, I wish we could uh, just spread that all across the United States and have people understand that. There are some things that should not be financially incentivized, and rounding up criminals shouldn't be one of them because you'll make some criminals. You'll find some people that will be criminals. Uh, Walter Crowles with Law Enforcement Against Prohibition in Texas right now. He's up in the Dallas area. Uh, do you have any uh, contacts or information you want to shout out before we uh, hit a break here? Uh, it's really uh, just uh, Google Lead. There's lots of very good stuff when you go on to uh, YouTube. There's a whole YouTube thing. We can see all the different speakers and where they go. And people that talk about going undercover and not making a difference to people that were in jail saying how much drugs were in jail. I mean, wow. it's really good stuff. Really good things to look at. All right. Well, Walter, thank you so much for joining us here on the show, and uh, good luck in all your work and travels with Lee. Thank you very much. All right. Stay tuned, folks. When we come back. We've got a radical rant on... Uh, Why was Ohio Issue 3 the bridge too far when we come back? You're tuned into the Russ Belleville Show. The voice of the marijuana nation. At Herbie's Cannabis Seeds, we pride ourselves on bringing you the best quality seeds from the world's most respected cannabis seed producers, all at the lowest online prices. You can find Herbie's Seeds at Herbie'sHeadShop.com. All cannabis seeds are sold as souvenirs and as a means of preserving cannabis genetics. Herbie Seeds in no way intends to condone, promote, or incite the use of illegal or controlled substances. We strongly urge all prospective customers to check their national laws prior to placing an order. Herbie's Seeds at Herbie'sHeadShop.com. Proud sponsors of The Russ Belville Show and 420 Radio. MJWellness.com, the largest medical marijuana community in the world. Connect with thousands of patients, doctors, industry leaders, and businesses through shared personal experiences along our worldwide network. Discover new therapies and benefits with content tailored to you. Come grow your network on MJWellness.com. You're not alone. Your wellness matters. Learn, live, and thrive. Check out mjwellness.com today. Maui Wowie. Acapulco Gold. California Kush. Our strains stretch everywhere, too. This is the Cannabis Radio Network. Hey everybody, it's Radical Russ here from 420 Radio inviting you to be like me and get your ink done at Lucky Horseshoe Tattoo, Fort Worth's most female-friendly, clean, sterile, awesome tattoo shop. Thomas and his crew are true artists who can design you a custom piece or use a design you bring in. Lucky Horseshoe Tattoo also offers all styles of tattooing as well as piercings and all-around fun. In the DFW area, stop by Lucky Horseshoe Tattoo and tell them Radical Russ sent you. Trust me, it'll feel awesome. must wage what I have called total war against public enemy number one. I support a change in law to end federal criminal penalties for possession of up to one ounce of marijuana. That marijuana, pot, grass, whatever you want to call it, is probably... 
the most dangerous drug. Some think there won't be room for them in jail. We'll make room. I experimented with marijuana a time or two, and I didn't like it and didn't inhale. And one major responsibility is to encourage people to use less drugs. Entirely legitimate topic uh, for debate. Radical Rant. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Radical Russ Belville here with the Russ Belville Show live at the Woodlands Backyard for the Women Grow event that's taking place here in just a few minutes. Great to be here in Columbus, Ohio. And we were just here covering the election on Tuesday. And I got to tell you, the moment that we took that electoral drubbing, that heralds the moment when some marijuana legalization advocates lost the moral high ground in the debate to end marijuana prohibition. For years now, the legalization side has positioned the arguments around themes of social justice and patient access. Legalization has to happen, the argument went, because black folks are four times more likely to be busted for weed. Being busted for weed meant a litany of harms, including searches, tickets, fines, arrests, incarceration, and job, housing, and educational opportunities threatened or lost. Prohibition meant moms with epileptic kids were risking felonies, or considering emigrating for cannabis oil. And veterans with PTSD and cancer and AIDS and MS patients would all suffer. I once heard Judge Jim Gray say that prohibition was the worst public policy decision since slavery. I once heard Dr. Michelle Alexander say that this was the new Jim Crow. The framing was that if we don't end prohibition, real human suffering occurs. Now, on the other side... Kevin Sabet and the prohibitionists have been fighting like hell to pull the reform discussion away from those twin pillars of social justice and patient access. On the medical marijuana side, the argument's over, with almost 90% of America agreeing that suffering people should have safe legal access to marijuana. On the social justice side, the racially disproportionate nature of it is impossible to defend, and increasing supermajorities believe that if there's any punishment to remain for recreational marijuana use, it should be the slightest of slaps on the wrist, not arrest and jail time. So Kevin Sabet can't win those arguments. Where prohibitionists want the argument to happen is in the frame of Big Tobacco 2.0. Prohibitionists want the framing to be about big predatory capitalists lying about marijuana and marketing it to our children. They need the argument to be about people getting rich by selling a dangerous vice. Now, some marijuana reformers would argue that's what they just defeated with these investor oligarchs and their cartoon buddy mascot. But by celebrating the crushing defeat of Issue 3, they've walked right into the prohibitionist frame by adopting Kevin Sabet's talking points. They've agreed there is such a big specter of big marijuana to be feared and opposed, even at the cost of patients' lives and consumers' liberty. Now that it is lost, the precedent has been set that social justice and patient access aren't so paramount. Now the question becomes whether the right people are getting rich on marijuana legalization in the right way. And if not, the injustice and suffering of prohibition shall continue. Social justice and patient access just took a backseat to economic considerations. Consider... The next time Kevin Sabet gets to debate one of these reformers on TV, when the reformer talks about the need to end arrests and help the sick, Sabet can just pivot and say, you could have ended arrests and helped the sick in Ohio, but you eagerly opposed that because it locked up the profits for 10 investors. So it really is about who gets to be big marijuana. End quote. So why was Ohio issue three the bridge too far? 
consider how difficult fighting in that economic frame becomes more, the more you know about reform organizations' history of supporting recent medical marijuana legalization. Suppose that Ohio's Issue 3 wasn't comprised of only 10 commercial growing licenses already owned by the campaign investors. Suppose instead there were just four commercial growing licenses, but they'd be up for competitive bid. Not pre-owned, four licenses up for bid, but it'll cost you $25,000 in a non-refundable application fee just to be considered for a bid, and then you've got to prove you've got $2 million at hand in escrow to move forward, and finally, if you're one of the four selected, your grow license costs $75,000. So it's competitive among multimillionaires. Is that something the reformers opposed to oligopolistic control of marijuana markets have to oppose? Because that's the medical marijuana law that passed in Connecticut in 2012. Maybe you didn't hear any mention back then from some reformers about how that was an oligopolistic money grab that didn't include the little guy. Nope. In March of 2012, Marijuana Policy Project raved about the plan that would, quote, finally provide seriously ill medical marijuana patients with the protection they deserve, end quote. Thanks were graciously offered to Drug Policy Alliance and Connecticut Normal for their hard work in setting up a state where not just the four grow licenses were controlled by rich people, but all the dispensaries too. And to date, there are just six of them, not the over 1,000 that Ohio Issue 3 promised. Well, I guess Ohio patients aren't as deserving as Connecticut patients. When it comes to medical marijuana laws promoted by reform organizations, any compromise is worthy of supporting, whether it costs patients or enriches oligarchs. In Arizona, 2010, Marijuana Policy Project set the precedent of creating the first medical marijuana state not allowing all patients to home-grow cannabis medicine. If they live within 25 miles of a dispensary, MPP decided, they'd be forced to buy marijuana at the dispensary. MPP's Andrew Myers at the time explained that it was necessary to, quote, ensure the dispensaries would be viable and to give them a market, end quote. Hmm... Writing a law that gives market capture to owners of grow licenses. Isn't that a bad thing we're supposed to oppose now? And since then, no medical marijuana state has allowed home grow for all patients. A compromise reform organization's claim is necessary to clear resistant state legislators. Massachusetts copied much of Arizona's 25-mile halo rule and only allows for 35 growers, requiring about $80,000 in fees and half a million in escrow. The rest of 2010's medical marijuana states, Connecticut, Delaware, Illinois, Maryland, and New Hampshire, all forbid home grow. So, we can force patients to buy medicine from capitalists rather than grow it cheaper themselves, because that's a compromise necessary to achieve victory, But the compromise of giving grow market capture to Ohio investors who proposed allowing patients home grow rights was too much to bear. And then there's Minnesota and New York. Those states passed laws proposed by the reform orgs that don't even allow medical marijuana patients to have actual medical marijuana. No plants allowed either for home grow or for purchase. Patients must use a non-smokable form of cannabinoid product thus eliminating the simplest, cheapest, and most effective medical usage for many patients. Those states have just two and five grow licenses, respectively. 
Minnesota has a $20,000 non-refundable application fee and startup requirements in the neighborhood of $10 million. New York's non-refundable application fee is $10,000 and the license costs $200,000. In both states, the growers also own and control the up to 8 or 20 dispensaries, respectively. How did we not hear screams of regulatory capture and monopolistic cash grab in 2014 over these laws? Why is it that New York and Minnesota locking up the entire medical marijuana market for seven entities and 28 dispensaries, making it all non-plant and no home grow? Why is that an acceptable compromise to help patients last year? But Ohio's 10 entities supplying over 1,000 independent retailers with whole plant medicine and allowing patients to home grow was unbearable this year. Finally, there's Washington's I-502, <laughs> just north of me in Oregon. Every reform organization was enthusiastically supportive of that legalization plan, even kicking in six-figure donations to help it pass. Even though patients complained that it didn't include reconciling the existing medical market and accurately predicted it would lead to legislative decimation of that market, reform organizations, and myself included, argued that the first legalization victory was paramount. Even though I-502 established a retail market without allowing home grow, which benefits the capitalists who are selling marijuana. Even though I-502 made the status quo worse for patients and frequent consumers by establishing a five nanogram per se DUID that all the reform orgs vigorously oppose. So, three years ago in Washington, we could reduce patient access, endanger consumers who drive, and give a market to the marijuana growers and retailers. But this year, we couldn't create in Ohio medical marijuana for patients who've never had it, give everyone the right to home grow, and establish more access to marijuana than in all four legal marijuana states combined. Because Nick Lachey might get rich? I'm sorry, none of these justifications about fearing the rise of the marijuana oligarchs rings true to me when the reform organizations since 2010 have supported every medical marijuana law they've written that does just that. But fortunately for me, Kevin Sabet can't trap me in that economic frame. I've always supported every marijuana reform that in any way curtails the ability of police to infringe on marijuana consumers' liberty. Kudos to National Normal and Law Enforcement Against Prohibition for recognizing that civil rights still trump economic ideals. All right, folks, that's all we've got for today in the Radical Rant and on the Russ Belville Show. Our podcast is coming to an end, but coming up next, we've got live coverage of the Women Grow event from Columbus, Ohio, here from the Woodlands backyard. Listen, we'll be speaking just a moment, and we'll have some music until then. You're listening to CannabisRadio.com, and I'm Russ Belville. You can catch my show every weekday live at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Replays on Cannabis Radio as well as podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. For everyone here in Columbus, Ohio, I'm Radical Russ. And until next time, take care of each other, tokers. This is the Russ Belleville Show.
The Russ Belleville Show is blogging and podcasting daily at RadicalRuss.com. You take a seed, you plant it, you grow it, you try it, you roll it, you smoke it. You take a seed, you plant it, you grow it, you try it, you roll it, you smoke it, and it goes down smooth. Cannabis 280E and tax strategy. Get your business prepared with New Era CPA's Cannabis Finance Boot Camp. NewEraCPAs.com. With years of experience in the industry, we are one of the nation's leading accounting firms for growers, dispensaries, and ancillary companies from Washington to California. NewEraCPAs.com. Dr. Dabber, hurry! Its temperature is shooting past 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit. It's burning up! I'm afraid for this little guy, it's just too late. What caused the problem? Only Dr. Dabber can maintain the perfect temperature for a smooth-tasting, slower burn. This standard vaporizer lost all of its health benefits, sending it up in smoke. So you're telling me that most vapor pens burn so hot they produce smoke, not vapor? Correct! Keep away from those standard vaporizer pens and turn to Dr. Dabber. Doctor's orders. Less heat, <laughs> Gondrepreneur.com, your guide to the cannabis business world. Gondrepreneur.com is a comprehensive resource for cannabis professionals and entrepreneurs. Download the Gondrepreneur app on your smartphone or tablet to catch up on cannabis industry news, scroll through our daily job listings, and learn about successful cannabis companies, executives, and investors. Gondrepreneur.com, helping Gondrepreneurs grow. Your connection to quality cannabis insurance services is spelled K-A-E-R-C-H-E-R. That's Karcher Insurance. We have worked with ventures like cannabis for over 60 years. We're proud to represent over 50 companies with tailor-made cannabis plans for owners just like you to insure your product, your plants, and your pursuits. K-A-E-R-C-H-E-R spells out their full-service insurance services, ranging from commercial to bonds, to personal, from life to health, and more. Contact the team at karcherinsurance.com and let our experience work for you. That's K-A-E-R-C-H-E-R insurance.com. Contact Karen and the team at Karcher Insurance at 1-844-421-3560. That's 844-421-3560. MJWellness.com, the largest medical marijuana community in the world. 
Connect with thousands of patients, doctors, industry leaders, and businesses through shared personal experiences along our worldwide network. Discover new therapies and benefits with content tailored to you. Come grow your network on mjwellness.com. You're not alone. Your wellness matters. Learn, live, and thrive. Check out mjwellness.com today. Great websites today need expert web design and development and need to be e-commerce ready and mobile friendly. But building a marketable and profitable website can be an uphill climb. Ready to make your new website or replace your existing website? Think Orange as the new way to get in the black. Orange Hill Development works with Fortune 500 companies and offer the same top quality development service at a fraction of what other providers charge. Brands like Absolute, Carlsberg, and Nestle trust Orange Hill Development. Find out why you should trust your website with Orange Hill. Contact Orange Hill for a consultation today at orangehilldevelopment.com. The smoke is rising, and the next crop of podcasts devoted to cannabis providers and enthusiasts are ready to be harvested. Welcome to the Cannabis Radio Network, founded by respected rainmakers who have been producing award-winning podcasts for over a decade. Industry headlines, business updates, medical reports, marketing, and e-commerce education rolled up perfectly for your consumption. Let's grow together. The Cannabis Radio Network. CannabisRadio.com. Get That's right, the official rock song of the state of Ohio. Hang on, Sloopy. I'm Radical Russ here, live coverage of the Women Grow event here in Columbus, Ohio on CannabisRadio.com. Great to be here. We'll get the festivities started here in just a second, so everybody mingle around, get yourself some nosh, have some fun, meet some people, say hi, and uh, we'll be back. We'll have some more music and ads until we get ready to go. Get.buzz. .buzz is the internet platform that fuels community interest, excitement, and new experiences. .buzz is the premier online destination for internet users seeking the latest news on a variety of topics. .buzz appeals to groups active in blogging, communications, journalism, advertising, and marketing. .buzz offers registrants a stronger alternative to the shrinking namespace of existing top-level domain names, such as .com, .net, and .org. Get your name now at get.buzz. How high do you like your profit margin? CannabisRadio.com The Russ Belville Show is proudly sponsored by the Marijuana Business Association. The MJBA, called by NBC News the Cannabis Chamber of Commerce, is the fastest-growing business association in the fastest-growing industry in America. I've been working with the MJBA for years, and I personally invite you to join the MJBA. MJBA also publishes the popular MJ Headline News on Facebook and the MJNewsNetwork.com and Marijuana Channel 1 on YouTube. Visit MJBA.net for more details. Being green is good. Growing green is good. Making green is great. CannabisRadio.com Doc Rob, the concierge for better living. 
Cannabis is just one of the many great plants that we have on this planet called Earth that we can use consciously and intelligently to improve our well-being. Take a real, raw, inside look at healthier living while sharing great ideas and improvements for a better quality of life. Learning to live and live well is a lifelong process. This is a journey. It could be you could be 80 years old or 8 years old. You can still learn something that's going to make tomorrow a little bit healthier, a little bit easier, a little bit happier, a little bit better. The Concierge for Better Living with Doc Rob. Only on CannabisRadio.com. Now here's a story about Minnie the Moocher She was a red-hot hoochie-coocher She was the roughest, toughest rail But Minnie had a heart as big as a hay whale Howdy, howdy, ho Loved him though he was cooking. He took her down to Chinatown. He showed her how to kick the gong around. Showed her how to kick the gong around. Hardy ho, hardy ho, hardy ha ha, hardy ha ha. He gave her things that she was needing. He gave her a home built of gold and steel, a diamond car with a platinum.
which way you voted. You participated in history in Ohio this week. I think it's fair to say that none of us that were working on this issue two years ago, when we really were honest with ourselves, thought that we would have a chance to vote on a statewide initiative in the year 2015, and maybe even in the year 2016 in Ohio. So I don't know about the rest of you that are in this room, but today I feel proud to be an Ohioan. This conversation that brought national attention to our state brought out a strange sense of pride. Um, I think prior to 2014, I probably would have been the first person to stand in line at Asha. And although we have had our fair share of faux pas and fair share of reasons to draw criticisms over the last year, the sense of community that this year and this election cycle provided for those of us in our state that care about the plant was amazing. And however you feel about the reason for that conversation to happen, the overwhelming response of the people on the ground right now that worked over the last year, regardless of what they were working for, especially the patients, is that they don't feel alone anymore. There were over a million people in the state of Ohio that voted to end prohibition. And if every single one of those people made three phone calls to their state representatives and to the elected officials, we would be heard. So, it's not over. The patients cannot wait. The people who are still criminalized in our state cannot wait. And Women Grow's focus is the entrepreneurs that want to take part in the cannabis industry. We'll talk a little bit tonight about ways that some people choose to do that on a national level, since we don't have the opportunity to start some of those businesses that we have talked about in previous months in Ohio at this time. We're going to start by, I'm going to do the standard Women Grow announcements, and then I'm going to welcome Chad Thompson uh, up to the stage. Russ is going to broadcast his interview with Chad live. Um, Chad's going to talk about what happened in Toledo this year and what just happened in Logan, Ohio this year. Um, because while everyone had their eyes on the state initiative, there was a second local initiative um, that was voted down also on November 3rd. At that point in time, I'm going to interview Russ Welton a little bit. He's going to bring a national perspective to this conversation about the state historically how what happened here compares to other things that other states have witnessed and where they went from there and examples of impossible paths forward. At that point we'll have questions and answers folks. So I'm going to start with the national announcements from Women Grow. Let's up. Give me hold just one second. We got a sound problem I got. Are you guys in the back able to hear me? Okay. So November 5th, chapter launch in Cincinnati. Tonight our sister city is launching the second Women Grow chapter in Ohio, um, led by Katie Murawski. So everybody send some well wishes to our sister chapter that is opening tonight. 
Um, additionally, Boulder is celebrating their one-year anniversary. Um, we often say in this industry we live in dog years, um, so it's actually kind of like their seventh-year anniversary because we pack a lot in a day. Um, Women Grow Signature Networking events um, in, today are in 33-plus cities um, across the country. The Marijuana Business Conference and Expo is next week, November 11th through 13th in Las Vegas, Nevada, with the MBizCon Welcome Party sponsored by Bang, November 11th at the Voodoo Lounge, Las Vegas at 6 p.m. Tickets are available on womengrow.com events. And then there's also the Women Leadership um, the Women Grow Leadership Summit. That's from February 3rd to 5th in 2016, and that's being held in Denver. Please go to womengrow.com for ticket information. The Women Grow First 50. Um, I already went over the sponsors for the local event. At the last event, I named off the entire 50. We've got a lot of stuff to cover tonight, so we're not going to um, hit that. But at this time, I would like to welcome Chad Thompson. Um, I've had the privilege to know Chad and work with Chad um, since spring of 2014, I think, is the first time we sat down and had breakfast together. you got to jump up. To talk about the local Toledo initiative, um, a little bit of history. At the time, I was the executive the director of the Ohio Rights Group, and there's a pretty tall, sordid past of interpersonal relationships in Ohio. And that election cycle in early 2014 was historic because it was the first time that the Ohio Rights Group supported anything else other than the Ohio Cannabis Rights Amendment. And we were able to join forces, Ohio Normal, Northwest Normal, and the Ohio Rights Group. And in one day, we collected over 3,000 signatures, um, which we don't think had ever happened at any place other than ComFest in a ComFest weekend up to that point in time. Um, Chad is a respected fellow. If you have not heard his name, it's because he does not participate in social media. Um, but I'd like to welcome Chad here, and he's going to talk with Russ. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot, Lisa. Thanks, Chad, for joining us here at the desk uh, with CannabisRadio.com. And tell folks just the, the basic details of what it was you were working on, what you've successfully uh, accomplished. Sure. Thanks a lot for uh, having me, Russ. Uh, what we did in Toledo is similar to what has happened around the country, but it's quite a bit different at the same time. So we did what's called a local ballot initiative, Sure. Uh, very common, uh, but the difference is, is that we did not legalize marijuana, which is a direct conflict of state law. Sure. What we did is we made it illegal and changed the penalty to no fines, no time. <laughs> so you, instead of making it legal, you made it a crime that has no punishment. That's correct. <laughs> okay. And I'll tell you why we did that. In Ohio, uh, the Ohio Supreme Court had ruled that it is not a conflict of state law to change the penalty. So they laid out ground rules for us to follow to write a law that will not conflict with state law and, and in fact, be enforceable mm -hmm. while still providing protections for consumers. Wow. I, now, I know in covering a few of these, I mean, Michigan's got a lot of cities that have done these sorts of things, and, and there's a few other cities around the country that have done these things. Sometimes the pushback from law enforcement is, well, yeah, but it's still against state law. We'll still cite you under the state law. Is that happening or a possibility in Toledo? Well, and that's the key difference. In those other cities you mentioned, yeah. up in Michigan, 
uh, in Maine, Portland, Maine, as yeah. you know, what they did, they actually did conflict with state law. Gotcha. So, so there was that local opportunity to push back. They had, and, and really those are political statements. Sure. Those are not enforceable. Some cities get some sort of enforcement by police officers. What, what we did in Toledo is quite a bit different. We did something that, in fact, does not conflict with state law. So, therefore, the officers do not have a choice. Gotcha. It's, it's mandated. It's, uh, um, in fact, uh, we made this uh, no fines, no time for all levels of marijuana, even felonies. So your, your, uh, your local control to set up what the penalties might be supersedes whatever might be available at the state level. It doesn't supersede it. It's just allowed by case law from the Supreme Court. Okay. okay. So they, that, that has been challenged before. See, the thing about Ohio is there's about 50 cities in Ohio that have a different penalty than state law. So that got challenged. Uh, somebody got a ticket, and they said, hey, you can't give me a more harsh penalty than state law. It went to court. It went all the way up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, well, actually, they can. Okay. It's not a conflict to merely change the penalty. So that works in both directions. It can be stricter or less strict. Well, that's exactly right. correct. And that's something that we first started in Toledo. Nobody had ever done that before. It was kind of a, a novel concept. Yeah. Um, you know, it was hard to wrap your head around. Um, but in fact, uh, what we found is once, and we, we actually, this happened September 15th, the election, this year. Um, it was over 70% voted uh, for issue one in Toledo, which was the local uh, depenalization initiative. Sure. Uh, the, the police in that city, the, the, the law director, the city prosecutor said, it doesn't make sense for us to even write tickets there's no enforcement. There's no penalty. We're just going to walk away from it. The beautiful thing about Ohio is on a misdemeanor level, we're talking about seven ounces yeah. of, of marijuana. So that's quite a bit we can have in Toledo where the police officers are literally walking away from it. Wow, that's a beautiful thing. Give it up for Chad getting this uh, changed in Toledo and doing this on the local level. And one thing we found throughout the states, uh, I'm, I'm from Portland, Oregon, what we found in the, in the states out west is a lot of them starting at the local level rather than trying to bite off the entire state at one time. Seattle, everybody thinks of Washington State being legal, but Seattle pioneered this with a lowest law enforcement priority for their police, which just said, yeah, it's still illegal, there's still a fine and all of that, but... Until you've busted all the other criminals, <laughs> then you can go after the marijuana criminals. So uh, do you anticipate this being a framework or a design, a template that could be used in other cities? And is that happening? That's a great question. And I got to say with an emphatic yes, that uh, it is happening and it's going to happen more. The beautiful thing about a local initiative is, you know, a statewide initiative is like an elephant. And you know the old saying, how do you an elephant? One bite at a time. One bite at a time. And that's what we're and doing. don't start in the back. No. <laughs> Whatever. So, so what we can do is, as grassroots activists, on a state level, it's very hard to get anything done, really. As you sure. know, it's, it's, uh, it's not a uh, grassroots game to any kind of real effect. The difference with a local initiative is, in fact, that it's exactly the opposite. We can do it. Mm -hmm. We did do it. And, uh, and we're going to do it. And, um, and it's something that uh, the citizens of Ohio now have as an option. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and I am from Ohio, and I'm proud to be from Ohio. And I'll tell you one thing about the people of Ohio is they will get up and they will get it done. Excellent. So um, I'm very excited. And uh, since this uh, has transpired, <clears throat> what have been the results? Have you been able to point to 
a savings in arrests, a savings in uh, police time, uh, anything like that? Or, or are there now pot zombies roaming the streets? I mean, what, what's been the effect? Well, you know, the funny thing is, is that, you know, I woke up the day that the ordinance was enforced, and every day since it's been the same. Toledo looks just like Toledo always has. <laughs> There's there's no pot zombies. Uh-huh. There's 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 nothing. It's the same town, and and I think that 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 is going to show the whole state that uh, this is very positive, very positive. And, and of course, it's so new. There's no statistics that I can point sure. to, but certainly. As a consumer, I feel less stress and anxiety in my life when I drive by a police officer. Sure. So, um, so there's that. There's always that. That's always a beautiful thing. I remember the first uh, experience I had in Oregon under a medical marijuana card. I had uh, four mature marijuana plants in the back of my Jeep. And I see that cop car pull up behind with that rack of lights. You know, And you get that icy cold feeling in the pit of your stomach. Oh, my God, I've got four. Wait a minute. These are legal. I, I had no okay. problem at all. Then you're like, hey, all right. I'm okay. <laughs> I'm Hello, okay. officer. So, Chad, uh, let me uh, take a chance here to see if anyone has any questions uh, in the audience uh, for Chad about this Toledo decrim or where we may move from here. We have, we have a question. We have a question. And anybody else who has a question, please come up so I can have you do it in the microphone. Chad, my question for you is, initially after the passage, I know that there were some public statements from the state police officers. Um, Have they given you any public statement or any indication since they kind of took that hard-nosed stance initially that they've stood down? Well, and and I'm assuming that when you say that, that you're you're meaning through the media. And I can say that one thing I've learned... Uh, in, in my years in dealing with the media is sometimes the facts are off. And, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure exactly. Nobody said anything to me personally. So it's, it's really hard to respond. But um, we've since filed papers in court uh, with evidence that uh, the state police, in fact, do not have jurisdiction in the municipality of Toledo. Uh, so, so that is going to be ruled upon by a, a court of law very soon. Thank you. Chad, I know the attorney general said they were going to file a lawsuit against. Where, where does that stand? That's correct. The Ohio attorney general did file a lawsuit and sued the city of Toledo. Now, here's what they did. They, they, they are seeking to stop felonies from being handled on the local municipality level. They have specifically said that they are not challenging the, the misdemeanors. So the court challenge is hands-off misdemeanors. What they're challenging is felonies. And, um, and we have uh, filed a brief uh, in Lucas County Court uh, that, uh, in fact, uh, conflicts with what he says and shows that we can, in fact, keep felonies on a local level. So, again, we, that's in the court system. Right now, it's being ruled upon, um, and uh, we'll find out very soon. One of the things about this initiative is we, we knew it was different. It was the first of its kind, and we knew there was going to be court challenges, so we certainly expected it. The great thing is is that we wrote this initiative to be challenged. We, were, we knew the rules, and we really tried to keep them within those ground rules. So the beautiful thing is, is we didn't just take a shot in the dark and hope that this is going to pass. Uh, we planned for it, and we, uh, you know, we planned to win, and 
and we're gonna. So there was another question from the audience um, regarding what allies you had um, with Issue 1 in Toledo that may have been city council or politicians in the area. Okay, you're putting me on the spot here. I am a consumer and my memory's bad. <laughs> but um, let, let me, uh, for anybody I miss, I apologize. It was a huge list. One thing we found in Toledo is that the support toward us became huge, um, you know, out of six mayoral candidates, five flat out supported us. And in fact, two came out and campaigned and stumped for us. Uh, human billboarding on a street corner. We had city council women that uh, supported us. We had uh, the state ACLU of Ohio support us. The Ohio Green Party supported us. Um, the NAACP supported us on a, on a local level. Um, again, I apologize. It, it was a long, long list. The, the Blade, the Toledo Blade endorsed us, um, which was uh, a major event for us. Um, you know, the, the, the um, expected turnout for that election was less than 2,000 people if we were not on the ballot. Less than 2,000 people. 16,000 showed up. And uh, we won over 70%. So... Uh, we have huge support. I have two questions. The first one, you mentioned that you had city council and, and people in the community um, supporting you. What would you do or would you have done it again if city council hadn't supported you? So, so I'm assuming you mean if they had come out actively and campaigned against us? We would have just battled them. We would have battled them in the media. And we were grassroots, so everything we did was uh, free. You know, uh, press conferences. And we had probably, you know, we averaged probably a press conference a week. Um, you know, we had hit the city very hard with body blows for years, softening them up. Um, so if we would have had any, and we had no active resistance. Had we, we would have, we would have, uh, we would have had it out with them. The other question is in regards to Logan and their local initiative. Why do you think Toledo did so well and Logan couldn't get the support? That's a great question. I appreciate you asking. Um, you know, it, the great thing is, is I was in Logan, Ohio, two days before the election. And I had the opportunity to canvas and knock on doors. And in a sense, I, I got to kind of poll the city because I really had no idea up to that point really where Logan was at. That's a town in the south. And if you just listen to people, you know, that's a conservative area. Ohio's a conservative state. And so I really had no idea where Logan stood until I got to go there and knock on the doors and talk to people. And I'm, I'm so grateful I did because now I know what happened. The people of Logan support marijuana reform, by and large, very similar to the, to the ratio they do in Toledo. And I suspect that's pretty similar throughout the state, in my, just from what I can gather. And so the issue with Logan was it was on a ballot, not by itself. Toledo, they just had to look at one issue, and you know it really came down to do you support marijuana reform or do you not? And, um, and we won that battle. In Logan, they did not have enough outreach to educate the public, the citizens, the voters, how the two interacted together, the statewide issue and the local issue. 
um, and I saw that confusion firsthand when I went and talked to him. And, um, and I was very concerned. I could see that there was a, a support for marijuana reform, but did it cancel out the state issue? Did the state issue cancel out this one? There was just mass confusion. And so the key, I think, for a, a marijuana question on a ballot is it's got to be on the ballot by itself. Otherwise, the, the, the waters get very muddy. And, and that's what happened. So... Uh, I would imagine uh, at some point Logan's going to go back to the ballot. And uh, if they were on the ballot as a singular marijuana issue, uh, I, I would suspect very highly that would, in fact, pass. And that tells me this can happen anywhere in Ohio. Well, and speaking of that, Chad, I know that there's been movement in a couple of cities with some grassroots organizers who are interested in... Um, copying what Toledo did and bringing it to other areas. I've got a twofold question. The first being, I wondered if you could talk to us a little bit about what areas in Ohio you're seeing movement and interest in local initiatives, and if you have an update or who to contact there to get involved, if you could share that with us. And the second part of the question is, you mentioned that you did this with little to no funding. Um, petitions cost money. Outreach costs money. A lot of us in this room have had grassroots experience knowing how difficult it is sometimes to rally folks to get off their couch and get active. I wonder if you could speak a little bit more to resources and maybe advice that you could give people across the state for being able to secure those to be able to move these things forward. Okay, I did warn you. I have a bad memory. That was a long question. What was the first part again? Just real quick. Summarize the first question. Update on what's going on in local initiative movement okay. around the state of Ohio. Great, thank you. Um, yeah, there's a lot of movement. There's a lot of movement. Again, before, before Toledo actually voted and, and, uh, and there was um, some enforcement, um, the local initiative in terms of complete depenalization was very novel and new and hard to wrap your head around and and uh, there was no law that said you could do it so uh, people were kind of hesitant and uh, as of right now there's about a half a dozen other cities major cities down to you know very small cities Columbus Ohio um, Akron Ohio Cleveland Ohio um, there's a, the, the second largest city in Hamilton County, um, Ashland, Ohio. There's, just, um, there's a lot of movement, but I suspect that once this dust settles in Toledo and this really plays out and the word spreads that uh, Toledo is a utopia, I imagine at that point you're going to see uh, a lot more movement. It's kind of a flywheel effect, slow burn. It's got to get started. But when it flies, it's going to really go. I'm sorry. I need you to repeat that one sentence that I don't think anyone in this room ever expected to grace their ears. Toledo is a what? I don't remember. Utopia, I think you said. Of? That, I, I didn't hear the of part. I just heard Toledo is a utopia. <laughs> It's going to be. So that's my other, then the follow-up question was talking about resources, funding, and financing. I understand that some areas in Ohio only really require a couple hundred signatures in order to get a local initiative on the ballot. There's a lot of additional costs. You need have printing costs. You have outreach costs. You have signs. You have all of those things that tend to add up for those of us who um, aren't making money um, for our activism or in the industry. 
What do you suggest as far as being able to line those types of things up? Uh, so let me just first say that um, if anybody ever wants to reach out, they have any questions, um, I do also have a local initiative guide that was put together. Um, there is an email you can reach out. It's helpnow420 at gmail.com. Uh, I'd be more than happy to help anybody, give anybody the local initiative guide, which is about 16 to 18 pages of information on how to do this locally. And, uh, and it talks about fundraising. One of the things that, as I told you, we're very grassroots. We had this initiative done, and we had to do our first run of printing, and we had about $200 in our bank account. So what we all did is we all got all of our stuff that we were saving for garage sales, and we had a big rummage sale, and we raised about $1,000 to start this whole campaign. In Ohio, there's about half a dozen cities that will require a fairly significant campaign and signature drive. Outside of a half a dozen, I would say the average number of signatures in Ohio is about 250 signatures required. So there's very little uh, resources needed for that. Really what you need, there's uh, local leadership. That's, that's the real resource and need. But for those half a dozen major cities around the state, uh, we have developed uh, a way to develop capital. Um, you know, it's, it's um, you know, what we did in Toledo, in fact, is we built a, a closed donation bin. You know, those bins you see on the side of the road and the gas stations. We built and painted a, a closed bin that brought in about $1,000 a month, free and clear, outside of the work uh, to uh, pick up the clothes. But we did, that's what we did. We did scrappy grassroots fundraising. Um, and the majority of our money went to a direct mail uh, to about 9,000 Toledoans. Uh, we did, and, and those, that direct mail list came from our petitions. They were double verified registered voters in Toledo that we knew would come out and support us. So we sent them a direct mail, and, um, and, uh, and, and obviously the voters showed up. And so luckily, at the very hardest level in Ohio, Toledo proved it can still be done by just regular people, plumbers, salesmen, nurses, doctors, just regular people. Okay, I have one last question for you, Chad. Um, being a group that is interested in participating in the cannabis industry and a group focused on entrepreneurship, I'm wondering what kind of ramifications and effects it has when we pass something like was passed in Toledo as potential business people. Do these de decriminalization um, issues give us any opportunity to operate any type of businesses in those localities? Okay, that's a great question, Lisa. Thanks for asking it. Um, I can say this. Marijuana is still illegal in Toledo. Marijuana is still illegal in Spain. However, they have cannabis social clubs. So, they, you know, you have Amsterdam where, you know, there's... You know, there's a certain level of tolerance required, but, but they, they have that tolerance. So the beautiful thing about Ohio is a 20-gram gift of marijuana is a misdemeanor. So in Toledo, a 20-gram gift is a no-fine, no-time offense. So there is 
very much so some opportunity in this law for Social clubs, for example. Um, and, uh, you know, at, at depending on the level of tolerance that you get, um, we, we've even talked about potential green zones. You know, uh, there could be a lot of tax revenue generated. Um, Toledo seems very tolerant, uh, very reasonable. And, um, you know, uh, cities are always looking for revenue. Can you explain what you mean by a green zone for people who might not be familiar? Well, what I'm referring to by green zone is, is you know, imagine, I don't know if you've ever seen, like, uh, the car lots where there's 10 of them in, in, a, in a big area. You know, um, you, you know, if you're a new car lot, that's where everybody goes to shop for their car. You want to go there. Uh, it, it's kind of along the principle of if you're opening a fast food restaurant, if you have a Burger King, where do you want to put it? Right next to McDonald's. They've done million-dollar studies on that. You don't want to be across town. You want to be together. And that draws a crowd. That's where everybody goes. So if you can imagine a certain level of tolerance, and we see it all over the world through decriminalization and then tolerance. In fact, in Spain, that got tried in the courts, and it got upheld. Um, We see the opportunity for that in Toledo and the rest of Ohio. Um, Again, the law itself was very novel and unique, And I know that this is probably the first time you've ever heard this. It might sound novel and unique, but it's it's actually happening elsewhere. And um, the Ohio law has kind of set us up to where we have we have that room. We feel. Let's give it up for Chad, ladies and gentlemen. Chad Thompson with Toledo, Ohio. Now back to Lissa. So before we start talking to Russ a little bit, um, looking at the national playing field, those of us who are planning on participating in the industry and starting businesses in the industry, I know a lot of folks woke up the morning of November 4th thinking, well, now what? I can't open my dispensary this year. I can't start making edibles. I can't do whatever it was we were dreaming of doing yet in our state. So what are some of the options that we have to move things forward? And you can, of course, start thinking about ways that you can operate in other states, in legal states, in ancillary businesses. Um, Andy Joseph of Apex is a prime example of that. Apex Supercritical manufactures all of their, pro- their machines here in Ohio, and they're one of the leaders in the industry. We have Canisher in Ohio, which is an insurance company for the cannabis industry. We have Mad Pharma, who is based out of Ohio, who makes packaging as well as participates in other parts of the sector. So with some creativity, with some capital, with some research, and with some passion... You can do that. What happens is a lot of folks living in prohibitive states don't see an angle to build those relationships and those networks in order to be able to move those things forward. They often say it's not what you know, it's who you know. And the industry is never going to be as small as it is right now. So I wanted to take a moment just to give a little bit of input on some things that I have found helpful 
Um, at this point in time, I might be the only single mother in a prohibitive state in the entire country that works full-time in the cannabis industry. And there's certain things that have been very helpful to me to move that forward. Um, one of those things is attending national conferences. You need to learn what's going on in other states and what's happening at a national level in order to be able to figure out where you might fit in, especially when you're operating out of a prohibitive state. Next week is a prime opportunity um, to see the big show. Um, the... Vegas conference next week, November 11th through 13th, is an excellent opportunity to see what's going on in the industry and to meet folks that are playing a major part in the industry. I highly recommend that you check that out. There's smaller conferences popping up all over the country, and all it takes is a quick Google search of different events. Um, it's a joke. The folks in Colorado don't even go to the only events in their own state anymore because they are saturated with them. And we've seen a lot of that in Ohio. One thing that this election cycle did, again, is it really made the conversation front and center. And that's drawn some attention. We're seeing cannabis conferences. I want everybody to stay engaged. If we disengage now, we're going to fall backwards. We've made a lot of progress over the last year, and if we stay engaged and use what we have right now, we as potential cannabis entrepreneurs in this state and we as, as advocates and people who care about the plant in the state have never had as much leverage as we do right now. So however you choose to keep working, just please keep working. Um, Russ, I'm ready to go ahead and chat with you a little bit. I'm going to ask Russ again for some perspective and kind of have a, a conversation with someone who has some national um, industry experience and some and experience in reform. We're not going to do a lot of talking right now about looking backwards, folks. Um, there are certain things that are part of the process for those of us who are in this state trying to pick up pieces right now that we need to do, and that looks different for everyone. And what it takes to move forward looks different for everyone. Um, tonight I want to talk a lot about what those specific options look like and also give us some perspective um, by comparing what we just went through to buy some things from the other states that have been through a loss um, so that we can really have an idea of what this might look like when we're able to get just a little bit of different distance from it. Um, so, Russ, I'll let you go, and then I'm going to ask you some questions, if you don't mind. No problem. Thank you. Thank you very much. Give it up for Lissa here, and thank you for being here at the Women Grow event. My name is uh, Russ Belville. I'm known as Radical Russ Online. I am a talk radio host for CannabisRadio.com. I write for High Times. I write for uh, Alternate, Huffington Post, and MarijuanaPolitics.com. And for the past 10 years, it's been my pleasure to be a marijuana reform activist and media personality and travel all around the country meeting people like you that are fighting at different levels uh, for marijuana law reform. Now, this is my first time covering uh, a marijuana election in Ohio, and I want to say congratulations for getting 35.9% of the vote for legalization. Yes! The day after 
I was consoling people. There was tears. There was sadness. Hearts were broken. Business plans were crushed. It was the end. It was over. We almost, we lost almost two to one. No, you won one out of three. You just joined a very exclusive club. Only six states in the United States have ever, ever voted on marijuana legalization. The four that have it now, Alaska, Oregon, Washington, Colorado, and California and Nevada have voted on statewide legalization. There will be again in 2016. So you're now just the seventh state to have ever voted on statewide marijuana legalization. And of those six states that have voted on statewide legalization, only one of them passed it on their first try. That was Washington. That's right. Washington's I-502 passed on its first try with 55.7% of the vote in 2012 with no home grow and a per se DUID. So it wasn't the best. In fact, of the four states that have legalization right now, the worst legalization. They only legalized an ounce of weed and only a quarter ounce of concentrate as compared to the rest of the states that have legalized more than that. So only one state got it right the very first time. And this was a state that had medical marijuana for 14 years. And not just medical marijuana, but really loosey-goosey open medical marijuana with dispensaries on every street corner and lots of people with recommendations. Of the other states that have voted to pass marijuana legalization, They've all failed at least once their first time around. And three of them, California, Oregon, and Nevada, have failed twice. They've had two statewide votes to fail. Way back in 1972, California had its first opportunity to vote on statewide marijuana legalization. This was before decrim. This was before even Oregon had decrimmed in 1973. In 1972, while the Gallup polls were sitting at about 16% for marijuana legalization, California put Prop 19, it was also called Prop 19, on the 1972 ballot and got 33.6% of the vote. So, y'all got three points more than California did the first time they tried. Not bad. Oregon, when it first tried, was 1986. Right in the middle of Nancy Reagan and just say no. Oregon got 26.3%. The worst a statewide legalization has ever gotten. So you're ahead of Oregon where they started. And then as we move forward into the 2000s, there were attempts to legalize marijuana in Alaska, Nevada, and, Calif- and Colorado. All failed. Nevada's first shot was 39%. Colorado's first shot was 41 Nevada's second shot was 44 Colorado's second shot was 44 So you're really only three to seven or nine points away from where Colorado, Nevada, and... Uh, uh, Colorado, Nevada, and the other one I just mentioned were in the 2000s, right? So Ohio has actually kind of made it to somewhere between 1993 and 2006. Yeah, all right. And I mentioned how uh, California and Oregon had multiple failures. The second failure in California was Prop 19 in 2010. They were polling at 55 to 60% in the lead up to their election. And... Right before their election, Governor Schwarzenegger had an October surprise. Yeah, I am going to change the law and decriminalize marijuana so you cannot be arrested for it. I know, lousy Schwarzenegger, but he passed this decrim and it kind of undercut some of the Prop 19 support. And Prop 19 ended ended up getting like 46%. But even that wasn't a loss because Prop 19 in California in 2010 
reignited this national discussion about legalization. It forced the entire country to start thinking about legalization as a viable strategy. And with the polls coming out saying it could have passed and it was close to pass, that really lit a fire underneath the legislators and all of these politicians as well to understand that this is now a serious issue. They can't just laugh us off like Barack Obama did in 2009. <laughs> I don't know what this says about the online community. <laughs> those stokers, those stoners. They can't laugh us off anymore. We're getting poll numbers. We're getting initiatives on the ballot. And in 2012, we succeeded finally. We finally legalized some amount of marijuana. Washington passed its I-502 with 55.7% of the vote. Colorado passed its Amendment 64 with 55.4% of the vote. And I was there in Oregon where our Measure 80 got 46% of the vote. Y'all feel crushed here in Ohio losing your vote? Imagine watching the state to the north of you passing it 10 points more than, by a 10-point margin while you're failing by an 8-point margin. That just, oh man, that hurt for so long. Knowing that seven miles across the river, they're going to enjoy legal marijuana, and in Oregon, we're still going to be stuck with it. And it was also a crushing defeat because in 2012, while all of the major organizations were pouring time and money and attention into Washington and Colorado, Oregon was kind of off here like a bastard stepchild. Nobody would pay attention to us. And part of the reason why? Didn't like our business plan. We had a business plan that concentrated all the wholesale marijuana into one uh, appointed board chosen by the growers who had set the prices. Didn't like the business plan. Failed. There's a lesson that could have been learned, huh? <laughs> but... We were uh, left and abandoned and not given any money and not giving any attention. And we ended up losing by eight points. And it just felt like, God, if we'd only had some help, we could have made it. And after we lost, we were threatened in Oregon. We were actually threatened by the head of MPP in a note, in a, a memo that was sent to all the reformers. Don't you dare try to go for 2014. 2014's an off-year election you'll never win. 2014, there's going to be a lower depressed turnout. And if you lose in 2014, it's going to ruin everything for 2016. And if you lose in 2014, we won't help you in 2016. You'll be cut off. Well, Oregonians don't take kindly to that kind of stuff. So uh, we went ahead. We found some funders outside of the national organizations. And we won in 2014, just two years after our heartbreaking electoral defeat. And not only did we win, we won with the greatest percentage that has ever passed a statewide legalization, 56.1%. So, the point for Ohio would be, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. And look at the positives. For one, you've learned how not to run a legalization campaign. <laughs> right? Now, I, I've gotten some notoriety in this state because, like, what the hell is this guy from Oregon coming in here telling us? And what does he care? And blah, 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 blah. I've been online. I've been called a shill for Responsible Ohio. If I had a dollar for every time I've been called a shill for Responsible Ohio, I'd actually have the money that they accuse me of getting paid. <laughs> but no, uh, my, my stance is pretty simple. I'm an old, long-haired rock and roll musician. <laughs> I know it doesn't show. <laughs> I miss my hair. I had hair halfway down my back playing rock music in the 90s. Horns, horns, baby. So for me, when I was buying weed, it was from the guy. You guys know the guy, right? That was my monopoly. The guy. Because under prohibition, you don't have any other choices. You don't get to go to Yelp or the phone book and find which dealer you're going to go to. You live under this monopoly of the dealer. 
the dealer who charges you $300 an ounce for something that cost him 25 to grow. The dealer who shows up with a short bag laden with pesticides 40 minutes late. So to me, I don't care who's making the money. Can I possess it? Can I smoke it? Can I grow it? Can I buy it? It's all I need. But that's not to say the economic side's not important. And I understand why people didn't like this particular initiative and fought hard against it. I totally understand that. And now that it's over, we can take that lesson and go, you know what? Come to think of it, this whole 10 grower thing, maybe we shouldn't have done that. And that's fine. We fight these hard battles and we get angry about it. Oh man, we beat bust heads and flame wars on Twitter and Facebook, but I hope everyone understands that you can disagree with someone's opinion vehemently. It doesn't mean you have to hate their guts. And we're really all on the same side, aren't we? My enemy is not someone who was against issue three. My enemy is not a rich person. My enemy is not a corporation. My enemy is a police officer who can still slap cuffs on me because I smell like weed. That's my enemy. That's what I want to fight. So as we move forward, let's learn the lessons we've learned from issue three. Let's reconnect, rebuild our networks, rebuild our friendships, rebuild our alliances to move forward. Put this defeat in the past and recognize the good that came from it. You just got over a million people in your state for the very first time to come out on an off, off year election for a controversial, poorly worded ballot initiative with economic flaws headed by a cartoon mascot. And you got one out of three voters to accept that? Your next thing should fly like an eagle. Thank you. I'm Radical Russ. All right, folks, Radical Russ here for Cannabis Radio. That's the end of our coverage here for CannabisRadio.com. We're going to go offline, but I want to thank everyone listening on CannabisRadio.com. And remember, the Russ Belleville Show comes to you live every weekday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on CannabisRadio.com. I'm Radical Russ. For everyone here in Columbus, Ohio, thanks for listening. And until next time, take care of each other, tokers. And we're clear. I just want to thank Russ for coming out. He did this last minute, this trip to Ohio. Um, he did it despite being threatened with lawsuits if he stepped <laughs> foot on Ohio soil. Um, Russ was one of the very first national people in the cannabis industry to even discuss Ohio or the fact that we had an initiative. And regardless of how everyone felt about issue three, um, everybody at least owes Russ a thank you for starting the conversation and forcing some other people on that level to participate. Thank you. So thank you, Russ. Um, I want to open this up to everybody in the room. Um, as you can tell, Russ has a lot of info in his brain um, and a lot of perspective and valuable information that those of us in this room can probably um, you know, learn from. So who in the room has questions? If you'll come up, I'll hand you the microphone again. And then if you guys you know, don't do that, I guess I'll ask a bunch of questions. And I'm sure everyone <laughs> in the state is tired of hearing me run my mouth at this point in time. So 
Not a single question for Russ. We'll get there. All right. So, Russ, I'm going to start here right. then. You do it. Um, what? Thank you. Yeah, Russ, I was just curious. What, what got you into radio? <laughs> An accident. Um, I was, uh, uh, at the time, I was an information technology professional, uh, network analyst, desktop support, uh, graphic design, statistical analysis, all that kind of stuff. And my wife uh, came home one day. We had a progressive talk radio station in Portland, Oregon. You remember Air America? Remember they had one to have a liberal talk radio to go against the conservative talk radio, right? So they had an Air America station in Portland called KPOJ. And my wife was listening to it driving home one day when she heard a contest called The Search for the Next Great American or Next Great Progressive Talk Radio Stars. Basically, they wanted to do star search for talk radio on the liberal side. They wanted to find the next Rush Limbaugh, but liberal, right? And my wife was like, oh my God, you've got to try out for this. You'd be so great for this. You've got to do it. Oh, you've got to do it. And I'm like, Pfft. I don't know a thing about politics. I've never done radio. Why would I do this? I pass. But she nagged and nagged and nagged until finally I just turned in a two-minute audition just to get her off my back. Just a really half-assed thing on the war on Christmas. And the long story short is I won Portland. I got entered in the quarterfinals, won that, won the semifinals, won the national finals in Washington, D.C., and ended up America's next great progressive talk radio star. I won a national contest is how it happened. So I ended up with a political talk radio show on XM Satellite for two years. Uh, after that folded, Normal's podcaster, Chris Goldstein, had to quit because he was in the middle of a divorce and his wife was using uh, Normal against him for child custody. So he had to quit at the same time I got off of XM Satellite. So I picked up that, turned it into a live show in 2008. 2012, I took it uh, on my own and became uh, uh, independent. And as of last week, I signed with CannabisRadio.com. So really, right place, right time, total accident. Yes. Just head up here, guys, if you have a question, so that way. I'm not going to tell anybody no. <laughs> you know, I, I always have questions. Um, because looking forward here in Ohio, it seems like all the initiatives that might be um, coming up are going to involve both medical and recreational from what I have seen so far. Is that, in your opinion, going to be a wise move, or should we just stick with the medicinal route? Yeah, I think your direction for Ohio now is medical. Um, you know, if, before Issue 3 came up, if you'd asked me, when do you think Ohio will legalize? I'd say, oh, probably by 2020, and it'll likely be medical first. And now after Issue 3 has failed and you ask me the same question, I'd go, eh, probably by 2020, and it'll probably be medical first. Although maybe sooner now. I think sooner now because... Even with the loss, you've, you've activated the, the, the statewide conversation, and they've seen the polls, and even, you know, a politician sees a poll that's 90% one direction, even politicians can't ignore that. So I think the, the, the strategy from their point of view might even be legislative. Let's give them as little bit of medical as we can to try to get the sob stories out of the headlines, you know, and that's what leads to things like CBD-only laws or no plant medical marijuana where you have to buy, you know, tinctures from the dispensary. But I think you're going to have something before 2020 even. I was just wondering, um, from a national conversation perspective, what you're hearing um, 
with Bernie Sanders. Ah, yes. <laughs> Bernie, uh, Bernie is beloved by uh, most of my colleagues in reform, even those, even those that are on the libertarian kind of right side of the aisle, uh, because he's the first of the two-party candidates to have ever come out for not just you know medical or rescheduling, but actually descheduling marijuana. Take it off the schedule altogether, treat it like alcohol and tobacco. Because, you know, alcohol and tobacco, they're Schedule One drugs if you had to schedule them. You know, no medical use, dangerous, all of that. So um, Bernie has just dropped a bill. Uh, it's, a, it's a refile of a bill that uh, Congressman Paul Polis from Colorado has filed uh, that has to do with removing marijuana from the federal schedule. Uh, that's what's going to happen on a federal level. The, the federal government's never going to say, and now marijuana is legal. What they will do is say, and now we don't care. It's up to the states. And I think that's the direction it's going. How will that affect the state initiatives? Uh, well, I mean, if that bill passes uh, and the federal law is now marijuana is descheduled and it's up to the states, then every state initiative gets a boost at that point. Because one of the arguments the prohibitionists use against us is, yeah, 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 patience and criminal justice and yeah, yeah, but federally legal. Oh, it's federally illegal. We can't do anything. We'd love to help you, but, you know, schedule one. My gosh, we can't do a thing. Well, you take that away from them. Now they have to debate the actual merits of whether or not we're going to legalize and what, what we'd save and how it would help patients and all that. So, yeah, that thing passing would be monumental. The other thing it would do is it would, it would be like a domino effect for other things federally that it would help. Banking would immediately open up because now it's not a schedule one federal substance, right? Uh, the cases in... Uh, Colorado. In Colorado, there was a case. Uh, first of all, um, this is one thing that really saddened me about issue three losing. Issue three was the first medical marijuana law that would have ever have let medical marijuana patients medicate at work. They've tried medicate in, in, in uh, Washington, Oregon, Colorado, California, and uh, Washington, Oregon, California, Colorado, Michigan. That's the other state. In those five medical marijuana states, each of their state's Supreme Courts has decided on a case where a medical marijuana patient got fired for inactive marijuana metabolites. You know, the P-test, right? Doesn't prove anything. Uh, but they've been fired. They take it all the way to the Supreme Court, and their Supreme Court says, sorry, drug-free workplace, against the law, federal law, no, no help for you, right? Americans for Disability, uh-uh, that's a federal law. Americans for Disability, federal, it's Schedule One, federal. So, yeah, you open up, you take that scheduling off, Americans for Disability starts kicking in on some of those cases. In, Col in the Colorado case, Brandon Coates, he was a quadriplegic who worked for Dish Network as a telephone guy. What a perfect job for a quadriplegic, right? Answering the phone at the cable company or satellite company, right? So he got fired for the inactive metabolites, took it to the Colorado Supreme Court, and there was a special deal in Colorado. Colorado has this law called the Lawful Off-Duties Activities Statute. And what it means is they can't discriminate against you at work for doing things off work that are legal. So if you join the Masons or the Elks Lodge or you walk in the Gay Pride Parade or you write a letter to the editor or whatever, you do something legal on your own time, they can't fire you for it. So Brandon Coates said, well, look, I'm in Colorado. I'm a medical marijuana patient. It's legal in Colorado. How can you fire me? And the Colorado Supreme Court said, uh-uh, it's not federally lawful. Which is weird when you think of a state Supreme Court evaluating a state law and then using the federal law to trump it. That's a little weird. But, yeah, if that fell, if that scheduling fell, Brandon Coates could reappeal, 
you know, saying that, hey, there's no longer a Schedule schedule 1, the Colorado lawful off-duty statute should take effect, and maybe then medical marijuana patients are protected in Colorado. So, yeah, the effect of Bernie Sanders' bill to deschedule would fix banking, would fix medical, would fix uh, taxation, IRS 280E issue, where all these dispensaries can't deduct their cost of doing business because it's federally illegal drugs. Yeah, it's, it's a huge thing if this thing passes. That's the long answer. <laughs> so if it were to be descheduled, do you think that on the state level, any legislators would try to push through for full legalization? Uh, in this state would, particularly? Um, or any probably state? Probably not this state particularly, but any state. Yeah. You see that happening. Already, already a lot of states. Okay, so the federal government has their own scheduling, you know, Schedule 1, Schedule 2, and all that, right? But every state does as well. Now, most states have copied the federal one. You know, oh, if PCP's illegal, then it's illegal here too. But a lot of states have made modifications to their scheduling and changed the scheduling of cannabis. Uh, my home state of Oregon, cannabis is a Schedule 2 drug. In Iowa, it's a Schedule 2 drug. Iowa, of all places, right? Which means, Schedule 2 means, yeah, it's a dangerous drug, but there is a medicinal use. Like cocaine and methamphetamine. Cocaine and meth are Schedule 2. You can actually get a doctor to prescribe them. Uh, cocaine's used in dental surgery. Meth goes by all sorts of trade names, like Adderall. <laughs> That's one, right? So, uh, yeah, if we get the descheduling at the federal level, I see all sorts of states pushing for reducing their own schedule or descheduling altogether. Um, again, because it takes away that, you know, daddy said argument. Daddy said it's illegal. Well, that argument's gone now. Do you think they would actually, the legislator would push for an actual legalization plan, though, where it was taxed and regulated? Hmm. Or do you think they would just deschedule it and say, okay do what you're doing. I think it depends on if we're in an initiative state or we're in a legislative state. In an initiative state, I see in the next five years, legislators going, holy crap, this legalization thing's coming. If we don't pass what we like, they're going to pass something we don't like, right? We actually use that as a threat in Oregon. After we lost in 2012, in 2013, we went to our legislature and said, hey, work with us and pass legalization. Or in 2014, we're putting something on the ballot. And they said, oh, no, no, no. And we said, okay, and we passed something on the ballot, right? So, yeah, in an in in initiative state, I think you're going to see moves toward how little can we give them to get them off our back kind of thing. So maybe decrim, maybe depenalization, maybe some medical. So, Russ and Jacob, I'll absolutely allow you to discuss any of the legalized 2016 things while you're here because we're all very curious. I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I've got some questions for Russ about some of the things looking forward. Um, All of us are aware that there's a group that um, opposed Issue 3 and advocated for the passage of Issue 2. Um, formerly known as Ohioans to End Prohibition, now rebranded as Legalized 2016. And they've been very vocal about um, waiting for a better plan for Ohio and that they had a plan to get us change here in Ohio in 2016 for the patients. And we've seen some vocal support so far. Um, A.C. Braddock, for example, from Eden Labs has been the most forthcoming about any plans moving forward by stating publicly on Facebook that she 
admirably is putting her money where her mouth is and has pledged both money and time to the legal to- legalized 2016 initiative to move them forward, which everyone in Ohio should be appreciative of. Um, I'll speak for myself completely when I think that anyone who said that we needed to wait should be ready to put their money where their mouth was at this point in time and help us do this in Ohio and move it forward. Also to discuss plans moving forward and give us the information that we were promised once issue three failed. That groundwork being laid there. Russ, with your experience and what you've seen happen in other states after failure in areas where it was a contentious ballot initiative that did not unite the cannabis community, um, where there was an absence of national support, what did you see play out in those states after the failure as far as beyond being threatened not to put it back on the 2014 ballot in Oregon, those types of things? On the ground with the grassroots, um, what did you see play out there? And what do you see are the chances of more folks like A.C. Braddock actually stepping up to help those of us in the state that are trying to move this forward at this point in time? Yeah, well, the two big examples would be California and Oregon. Uh, California, with 2010, after Prop 19 failed, uh, everybody was like, all right, we'll get it together for 2012. We'll all be united for 2012. And nobody united for 2012, and they didn't vote on anything in 2012. So the, the movement got really fractured. Now, how well does that translate to Ohio? Well, both Ohio and California both have long, long histories of marijuana legalization reform well-entrenched local grassroots players and existing coalitions with various fractures and feuds that have happened and built up for decades now. So the lesson of California is you can't let that get in your way because what California had was six or seven different groups all with their version of true legalization and they wouldn't support each other. And this time around, I think they've learned their lesson and they're trying to coalesce a little bit more. Uh, Oregon's example would be that when we failed in 2012, the same guy who failed in 2012 tried again, was going to go again with 2014, and a separate group came in to try to do 2014, and the activist community kind of raised their collective voices and said, work together, please work together, and it actually happened, and everybody coalesced behind the one uh, organization, and we got it passed. So from California, I've seen what not to do, that is United or divided we fall. And in Oregon, I've seen what you do do. United we stand. The one different dynamic now, though, is that back then, the Gallup polls weren't over 50%. And now they are. The Gallup polls are 58% for support. And we've got states that have legalized, so now all the money interests can smell green. All the big money interests. And what I fear now is we're not going to have the problem of too many activist groups fighting for one pot of gold we're going to have too many pots of gold fighting for too few activists. <laughs> the, the, the talent will be diluted as far as where they can go and everybody coming up with their own uh, business plan of how they're going to get legalization done. Uh, I worry about that because if you end up with two or three fighting for it, you're dividing the possible funders, you're dividing the possible support, you're confusing the voters when you're going out getting signatures. Now, did I sign initiative one or did I sign initiative two or did I sign initiative three? And, and on those initiative sheets, if you've signed one of them twice, that can invalidate like 10, 20 people's signatures. So I'm just hoping that this issue three loss can, can force 
maybe a shotgun wedding between the money side and the activist side to work together so that the money side recognizes you need the expertise of the activists who've been through this and the activist side recognizes you need to make compromises to get money and win votes. That's what I'm looking for. Um, I'm going back to what you said about the state... um, giving us as little as they possibly can um, just to squash the masses, if you will. Um, And it brings to mind, I think it's 33. Correct me if I'm wrong. Issue 33, and I see, you know, yeah, House bill. Um, In the last two days, it is all over social media. I've never felt more like the uh, government was, uh, excuse the pun, blowing smoke up my ass more than I have with that little piece of legislation. There's so many words in there like could, maybe, we might start a pilot study after we research in a methodical way. After an advisory vote. Ugh. (laughs) And I hope this doesn't slow down our progress. And um, I don't know. What's your thoughts on this? I, I think as long as you have funding for initiatives and language that can pass, they're forced to have to react to that, right? So there's going to have to be some polling and some study to figure out how much can we put on an initiative that will, A, clear issue two now. That's going to be difficult. And, and two, we'll get a big enough majority that it would scare the legislature into doing something. Like, if we came forth next time around with the what I like to call the tilt model, treat it like tomatoes, Everybody can grow as much wheat as they want anywhere they want, and there's no taxes, and everybody, you know. Then the legislature's not going to be scared because there's no chance that's going to pass. They have no reason to do anything. But you come together with something really, you know, one of the things I've been proposing is a Washington, D.C.-style grow-and-give initiative. Come forth with an initiative that says people can home grow, they can possess, they can freely share with one another, but there's no commerce involved. No pot shops, no commercial grows. That clear issue, too. There's no taxes. There's no pressure on benefits. And who would pay for that? Well, I don't know. That's the thing. <laughs> Who's going to pay for that? Yeah. So, Russ, while we wait for another question to come up, when we're looking at other states where um, the legislature has stepped in to either deflate a coming ballot initiative or they have stepped in regardless of the pressure on them. I know from my research, and you've been very vocal about comparing the medical initiative that the state just said no to, the medical portion of Issue 3, to other medical programs that are in the state. And there's a reason it was called the best medical program east of the Rockies. Yeah. What I'm hearing at this point in time is that your suggestion for us would be, and I'm reading between the lines to put our lobbying shoes on and to put as much pressure as we possibly can on the state house to take what is probably going to be something that gives us this much and advocate for access to whole plant cannabis for medical yeah. uses. And that's where you would concentrate your efforts. Yeah, they're, they're going to want to not give you home grow. They're going to want to not let you have home plant. They're going to want it to be controlled in dispensaries with non-smokable options like Minnesota or New York. And so the key becomes educating lawmakers on why that won't work 
uh, educating on things like the entourage effect of the whole plant cannabis. Uh, and it's going to be a tough road to hoe. But, uh, yeah, that's, that's what the fight is going to be is for, is for what can you get out of medical that they don't want to give you. Chronic pain, that's going to be tough to get. Uh, I just wanted to kind of point out real quick, in terms of the legislators, in terms of leverage, the local initiative, when, when, when they start popping up around the state, that's going to be a lot of leverage when uh, we're talking no fines, no jail time for seven ounces. So I, it's yet to be played out how that will affect the legislators, but I think it's going to definitely have an effect. I'd do that in every big city you could do it in, for sure. Uh, that's how Michigan and uh, Massachusetts made a lot of their gains. Uh, Massachusetts, they had passed uh, various medical or legalization advisory votes, which they don't even carry the weight of law. They're just like, we think it would be a swell idea kind of vote. And they passed 30 of those in Massachusetts before in 2008 they passed decrim, and then 2012 passed medical, and now in 2016 looked like they might pass legalization. Yeah, you build it at the local level, and uh, you could have more success than trying the, the, the state level. Yeah, and that's something we talked about, you know, as early as you and I met in spring of 2014, is how to build that pressure and keep the iron hot. And, Jake, I don't know if you can answer this for me or not, but there's been talk over the last 72 hours of legalized 2016, um, at least investigating the possibility of rewriting their ballot initiative because of issue two. I'm wondering if you guys have talked about doing any type of medical only rather than doing adult use as well. Uh, real quick, I know everybody is interested in hearing something from us on uh, Legalize Ohio 2016. We're working nonstop. We slept very little over the last few days. I will say if, if 